Welcome to Revere Assets, Your Money, with Danny Stewart. You never know how far the stock is going to go down. Tim Razor. Danny knows I'm a geek for all of this stuff. And Don Vandenborg. Telling it like it is. If you're seeking the best stock knowledge this side of Wall Street, you've come to the right place. I'm sorry, did I steal your stuff? No, you didn't steal any thunder. Who's handling this segment? (laughs) For the next hour, Danny, Tim, and Don will be talking investing. Investing is 90% psychological, and I love that. Trades. The market will usually overshoot to the downside and to the upside. And dumpster fires. Because it doesn't matter what you think or what I think, and it matters even less what Danny thinks. And now, here's your hosts... Danny, Tim, and Don. Is the crash of a lifetime coming? Are we headed for World War III? Well, the crash of a lifetime, according to Harry Dent, it's coming, and it's coming in 2024. Now, was it the crash of a lifetime in 2008 when Harry Dent had his book, The Roaring 2000s, when he said the 2000s were going to be just awesome? So, you know, he's kind of like a clock twice a day. He's right and he's wrong. You can't put a lot of, a lot of credibility. He's a great economist. But his three ETFs that he opened up years ago, they had to shutter within two years because of performance. So just because the economists say so, doesn't make it true. Now let's talk about the whole narrative this week. The whole narrative is the Middle East, Israel and Hamas, and the potential for World War III, for, for global Armageddon. And look, folks, I am not diminishing the, the, the risk and the problems in the Middle East. And it is a powder keg, and something could go wrong very quickly. You have human error. Human error and so I'm not diminishing uh, the fact that it is a dangerous situation. However, if we were really, if big institutional money, I mean, what are yields telling us? What are bond prices, bond yield price for bonds is the interest rate? How, what's the cost of money? Okay. If we were really headed toward World War III and we were, it, it, the thing was accelerating and getting worse, treasury yields would be coming down. People would be flying to quality. They would be, quality, treasury bonds. Treasury bonds and gold would both be rallying. They would be, when you get the fear trade, treasury bonds and gold are positively correlated. Right now, yields are still rising and gold is actually going up in price. So treasury bond prices have been going down and yields have been going up. So that's saying they're worried about inflation and they're worried about other problems or the, or the banks are in trouble. Are the banks in trouble? Do we have too much debt? And the auctions went off uh, poorly because there wasn't enough demand or is there not enough demand to buy these bonds? That's why yields go up. Yields go up because the auction went in too light. You didn't have enough buyers. People are worried about inflation. So when they get their principal back, it buys less stuff. It's about purchasing power. Remember, inflation is kryptonite to bonds. It's worse for bonds and rising interest rates. Or is it just as uh, people think we're going to have this soft landing and, and the economy is going to reignite causing inflation? You would buy treasuries 
if you think we're going into a, a recession, a bad recession or depression, or if you think we're having geopolitical world war. When you've got big wars, when not just skirmishes, when you've got a war, everybody goes into treasuries. Okay? That's not happening. Price is truth. So right now, bonds, the biggest market in the world by far is the treasury bond market. It's way bigger than the stock market. And between you and me, the politicians and the Fed, they don't give a rat's behind about the stock market compared to the bond market. The treasury market is the only market they care about deep down. That's where they get their financing from. That's where they have all their controls. That's where they do all the regular is around the bond market. So right now, bonds are going up. I mean, down in price, up in yields. And if the institutional money really believed that, that, that the Middle East was going to expand to a global conflict, you would have yields dropping. That's, that's my opinion. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what Don thinks. And it doesn't matter what you think as an investor. It really matters what the markets are actually doing. So we're going to go to that. I'm going to look just a few weeks ago. We talked about how the market was actually looking like it was setting up to be very bullish and things were looking very good. Man, what a difference a, a day or a couple of weeks make. The, the scenario has changed and we're just teetering just above the 200 day uh, moving average. We're going to talk about all that. Because today, I think it's more important on strategy and the markets with what's going on. I think it's more timely than talking about some of the, normally on the show, on your money podcast, I'll talk about topical stuff first. We'll take off the gloves and talk about the traditional advisor brotherhood or annuities or you know stuff like that. And then we get into the markets later. Right now, I just want to dive into the markets because I think that's how important it is. And the market is, is dangerous right now. And to do that, I'm actually going to talk about the mailbag because we actually had two mailbag uh, 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 questions that came in that were just apropos that will dovetail into what we're talking about with the broader markets. So with that, um, Don, I'm going to start off with this uh, synopsis uh, mailbag question. So if you can pull up that chart. So now, folks, okay. this is this is bad on bad bad. This is back on ten thirteen, which was what Monday, uh, either Monday or last Friday, right after we did the last show. And this is from MW. It says, "Hi, Don. Would ask you to take a quick look at Synopsis ticker SNPS. It's for potential for. I'd ask you to look at Synopsis for potential growth." I, I continue to hear about more adoption of their product named Black Duck. We use it here at AA to scan software systems for vulnerabilities. Chart shows a great year. Thanks, MW. Don answered. <clears throat> Hi, MW. Synopsis looks great. Very solid EPS and sales growth and a very strong growth. It's on our liquid universe list in the software design group along with uh, CDNS, Cadence. Um, thanks for reaching out, Don. So we're going to talk about that, that, that Cadence. But I, I want to keep going and go to this next one, which is, was, is, was, we'll talk about that. Another leading stock, Tesla. 
which is uh, uh, another question. Now, we got this one this morning. Now, for those of you who haven't been paying attention, Tesla two days ago was down 10% yesterday or yesterday. Then it was down a couple percent. Today, last I looked before doing the show, it was getting hit again a couple percent. And it says, good morning. Is it worth keeping a position in Tesla or trim or clear entire position? I have 50K invested in it and it's down 19%. Me, he, he, me. I said, then yes. At first I said, is it a taxable account? If it's a taxable account, yeah, yeah sell. You can always buy TSLL, that's the one and a half times long Tesla ETF, if it moves above yesterday's high within 30 days, but talk with me first. The reason I want to talk with him, there may, we'll have to talk about using ETFs as a surrogate for the stock. There may be tax implications. But anyway, I said, me, you could also use a 200-day uh, moving average as a stop but I would probably be more defensive in this particular market. In other words, I'd probably just go ahead and sell now. I don't know that I'd wait for the 200-day because, uh, quite frankly, uh, uh, the market's weak right now. And I said, uh, and he said, sure. Should I clear full position if below the 200-day? So he's asking me again. He, he's got a loss. He doesn't want to be wrong. He's trying to figure out how to sell a little bit. And I said, um, um, yes. Yes, meaning yes, sell the whole position. But here are the questions you must always ask before buying a stock. Question one, how much relative to your portfolio, how much that stock position is relative to your total portfolio, the position size? This should be standardized so each stock will have a similar, same effect on the portfolio. I'm going to let Don explain this pretty soon because we're not talking about the same position size for each stock. So you don't just buy a 4% stock position for every stock because they move differently. We'll get to that. Okay, number two, question number two. Where is your stop going to be below the price you buy it at before you buy? In other words, where are you going to get stopped out at? You've got to know that before you even buy the stock. And third question, what is the impact of the portfolio if you get stopped out? So if you have these three, if you don't have these three questions answers in advance, you're a retail investor playing against professionals. You here you are trying not to be wrong and you're paying for it. Meaning he's let it already go down. The stock should have already been sold. Now you hate to admit it was wrong and you don't want to sell it. You need to keep losses smaller. And you need to try to avoid turning into double-digit gains, especially 20-plus percent uh, uh, losses. Recouping those are very difficult. Compounding works in both ways. Uh, this conversation will make the uh, 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 podcast because it's a great learning tool about leading stocks in general. Folks, leading stocks lead both ways. They lead on the way up, but unfortunately, they lead on the way down. So I know that was a lot. That was a mouthful. And Don, that gave you a whole lot of stuff to, 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 to go over. But right now, what are we looking at with the markets, where the markets are, and what should investors be thinking and doing? All right. Uh, I'm going to address synopsis first. There's, that's a 
That's so an easy one. Synopsis. Yeah, I showed uh, the chart that uh, the listener sent in uh, for synopsis on 1013, and it looks quite a bit different now than it did on 1013. 1013 uh, was a day off of the high on this stock, with a breakout from a flat base, very nice flat base, uh, good fundamentals, good earnings growth, good sales growth in a uh, computer software design related to uh, integrated circuits and they're, they're uh, one of the co-leaders, the other one being CDNS, and we'll look at that in a minute. So very nice breakout on volume, uh, pulling back on lighter volume, but obviously this chart looks a lot like a bunch of leading stocks look today. They held up above their eight and their 21 day moving average until the last couple of days when they didn't. So uh, break below the 21 day, we only, to me, if I was holding it and I didn't have gains in this, it would be a sell. They've got uh, earnings over a month out. Uh, 450 is a big support area on this, which is below the 50-day moving average. So let's go to a competitor. Uh, and the reaction to the cadence earnings, these two really move in tandem with each other. See very similar patterns, uh, synopsis a little bit stronger. Uh, it broke out of a flat base cadence, broke out uh, of a cup and handle, and also topped on 10.12 the same way this one did. It also broke the 21-day moving average today the same way uh, Synopsys did, right above the 50-day moving average. But note that cadence reports earnings early next week, and the reaction to that earnings is absolutely going to impact what happens with Synopsys. Uh, these two, as leading stocks in software, are on our universe list, not ne not necessarily on our uh, focus or buy list, but we're aware of what they're doing. They are uh, leaders, but CDNS and the reaction to earnings uh, next week is going to impact uh, Synopsys, so we'll be keeping an eye on that. Let's move to Tesla now, and Dan mentioned a bunch of questions that should be asked, and it seems like a situation where the story and the price are now out of sync. I, I'm a huge fan of Tesla, the company. I think they, the, the big three automakers have a lot of challenges ahead of them to be able to transition to making EVs profitably. Tesla has proved it can do it, uh, but their reaction to earnings uh, and the, the fact that they may, well, first of all, reaction to earnings. So they gapped down on earnings, closed down 9.3% uh, on the day, close to the 200-day moving average. That's the black line there. Whenever something gaps, whether it's to the upside or the downside, we take note of the high and the low of the gap day because sometimes a gap down will put in the low and you'll start to rebound. Uh, a red flag is if you break below the low of that gap down day because that means people plain and simple, weren't finished selling uh, on that day. Compound that with the break of the 200-day moving average today. Uh, so the couple of reference points here, the prior low in this base, 212.36, that's uh, pretty much, we undercut that today. That's about where we are right now. Coincides very closely to the 200-day moving average. Looking back to prior bases, it broke out here above 207, which is a couple of dollars below. Uh, and then you've got the round number 200, which very often provides support uh, or resistance. And you can see Tesla battling around this $200 level several times. It acted as support back here. 
in October before finally breaking. It acted as resistance on a rally. Uh, we bounced around there below the 200-day moving average there and there. Uh, broke above the 200-dollar level and the 200-day moving average back in May and went on a very nice run, but has given all of that back. So um, Tesla, the story, great. Tesla, the price now is out of sync and it's if it's to 200 uh you've given back 33 percent of where you were off the high i don't know what the cost basis is but or when it was purchased but the the letter did say it's down 19 percent on it and that was as of yesterday so uh if you're looking to harvest losses uh we would do it and then as dan mentioned that tsll if for some reason uh Tesla, the market, whatever, would undercut and then reclaim the 200-day moving average. It's actually a low-risk entry point uh, to get back in there. Uh, so a lot of moving parts here. It depends, again, if it's taxable, not taxable, what percentage it is of the overall portfolio, why you bought it, uh, what's your reasoning, what's your thesis on it. But right now, th there's really nothing bullish about Tesla with this reaction to earnings. Uh, on the gap down. People who really love the story will be delighted because they'll say they can buy it cheaper now and they're looking multi-years out in the future. But uh, Tesla's earnings report, they're cutting prices. Uh, they're also cutting their cost of goods sold for making the cars, which is again, gonna be another problem with the big three trying to compete uh, with EVs. Uh, but, uh, Tesla dropped 50%, over 50% here from its prior highs. If you go to a weekly chart here where it bottomed at 100 off of this price, off of a $400 high uh, back in late 2021. So you can absolutely get decimated holding onto Tesla despite, regardless of what you think about how great the future is for the company. Uh, the future for the company was just as great back here as it is now. Uh, they've got the Cybertruck coming out. They've got semis. They've got, uh, they're redesigning some cars. They're doing a lot of great things. They've got uh, a solar component. They've got a power wall component. Uh, but the market is speaking loud and clear with a big selling volume after a gap down day on earnings, or which prompted the gap down day on earnings and is now making lower lows. So this is an avoid for us. Right, right. And, and, and folks, that's the whole, so one of the points you got to realize is, especially with growth stocks, with leading stocks, Tesla was one of the best performers prior to 2000, right after COVID. And then the next year it was down 69%. Leading stocks, the best of the best on average fall 72% from their highs in the bear market. That's why, so right now, a lot of these stocks, even though they're great companies, it's a lot more about the market risk and the cost of money is making it more expensive. Their, their profits are going down, but people are worried about the overall economy. So there's times to own stocks when the wind's at your back and there's times to lighten up. And so, the, so it's not that we don't like Tesla. We just don't like Tesla right now. That's, that's really the bottom line. All right, Don, well, let's go ahead and keep going to the markets and, and let's talk about what you guys are doing uh, today uh, with this uh, negative follow through so far. Yeah, we really not only don't like Tesla, we don't like the market a whole lot right now either. So the market bounced uh, and had an O'Neill follow through day two weeks ago today. It was on uh, October 6th and it had some very nice follow through strength a couple of days after that. Then it went into a consolidation pattern 
Uh, I've been highlighting this on a 30 minute chart in uh, the nightly videos this week. And kind of the line in the sand that we were looking was around this uh, 4320 area where we, uh, here was the follow through day coming off the lows where the low around there was uh, 4216. We haven't reached or breached uh, those lows yet. So that's a positive. Here's the follow through day. Here's the high around this 4386 area made. And what you see here is a false breakout on uh, Tuesday of this week above that 4386 area. We, we um, took some additional positions, but by the end of the day, uh, that failed and we've been trimming a lot of things uh, over the last three days. Uh, there's a saying on Wall Street from failed moves come fast moves in the opposite direction. So you've got your failed move there and you've got your fast move in the opposite direction over the last three days, including this, uh, not only this break of the 4320 area, which happened on Thursday, uh, but very clearly following through to the downside. And now we're down to levels uh, just above the early October lows and even more critically, right at this black line, the 200 day moving average on the S&P 500. And we've uh, bounced a little bit off of that as of noon on Friday, uh, but it's very critical that this level held. I've uh, put up over and over again, a chart that shows uh, the, the last 13 bear markets. They don't occur where you're not at risk of one until you get below the 200 day moving average. This is exactly what happened on the, uh, uh, back in 2022, once we finally broke below the back, the black line here, and this is all bear market activity and it all occurs below the 200 day or the 40 week moving average, which is uh, the, the corresponding level on a weekly chart. This is when your risk in the market substantially picks up when you're below this black line and you can see we're basically sitting right on it now. So, uh, we got stopped on uh, did a combination of offensive selling on some things that were extended to the upside like oil uh like interest rates uh yesterday like uh but today and a lot yesterday has been all about defensive selling and that's a lot of the leaders that we had positions in breaking their 21 day moving average and we just taken our small losses on them and we'll wait for uh, the market to improve and if it doesn't uh, we do a combination active and passive management here. We normally keep a 50 to 60% exposure in the S&P 500 until we break this level, the 200 day moving average, and we're teetering right on that now. And um, risk substantially skews against you when you break the 200 day, it gets even worse when the slope of the 200 day starts to roll over. Right now, the, the, the slope on the 200 day, it's only increasing by two to three points a day. And uh, this is where things really got bad back uh, during the bull market is when the slope of the uh, moving average rolled over and then the bulk of the losses were uh, occurred after that happened. So. That's the situation that we're in where you could say, you know, we're at a goal line stand here. This 4,200 level is also a very key round number level. It acted as resistance on a rally back up in February. It acted as resistance in May on the rally back up until we broke back above that level uh, in early June, but we've given up all those gains uh, now from that early June breakout. 
and we're testing those levels and it's a very key critical level in the market and that's not even considering the issue with interest rates uh middle east ukraine uh tightening uh of the fed's balance sheet there's there's really a lot of geopolitical and financial risk going on in the market right now and the market always climbs a wall of worry there's just a lot going on right now and stocks are even though we're getting ready to enter uh, a historically bullish period of Q4. We're actually started in it, but October hasn't been uh, kind to stocks. It appeared that it was going to with this bounce and the follow through day that happened. We stopped going down at the beginning of October and rallied into mid-October, but now the last week has been pretty uh, brutal on these markets, not only on the indices themselves, but even more so on leading stocks. And that's our indication to, to just back away, take hands off and see what happens around this level for the 200 day moving average down to the 4,200 level. So, oh yeah, uh, and, and listen, not, I've, not a big range here, about, yeah, about a percent range between where we are in that 4,200 level. And look, this is all about probabilities, folks, and measuring risk. So I would rather be stuck out wishing I was in and giving up a little upside than stuck in wishing I was out and watching my values just get uh, uh, obliterated. That's what happens when you break below the 200-day moving average. So the average returns, monthly returns, on average when you break the 200-day moving average is negative 2.6, right, Don? Negative 2.6% return per month. Is it 2.8 or 2.6? One of the I, I would have to look it up, uh, but it, it's negative when you're yeah, below the 200. It's and negative. Again, that tells yeah. you. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's like per percentages. Yeah. And here, uh, but here's the thing they don't. So, and then it's positive 0.8% to the upside when you're above the 200 day moving average. But here's kind of what they don't tell you with the statistics and the quants. Folks, a lot of times when you break the 200 day moving average and the 200 day line that Don showed you starts to hook over and curl over, that first month or two, you could lose 15, 20, 30%. So even though it's negative 2.6% average, the first month or two could be a 30, 40% drawdown. And then the next couple months, you actually come up eight or 10% in a month. But when you average those months all in the bear market, it becomes a two, you know, 2.6. The point is, they always say that the, 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 uh, it's, an escalator it's an elevator down and an escalator up. So it goes up more slowly, but it, it goes down very quickly. So what I'm po pointing out is if we do get in a bear market scenario and you breach the 200-day moving average and the 200-day moving average hooks down and we start and selling starts to accelerate, and especially if that this, the rate of change of the line, the second derivative of the line really starts to hook down, you need to not ask questions. You need, don't need to question. You need to get defensive, however that is, whatever your plan is. You need to have a plan because, again, that's where the big money is lost. So right now, the probabilities for a equal move, 10% uh, or more, one way or the other, the odds are lower, not higher. Okay? Right now, the odds, the risk is very high. So therefore, your portfolio should reflect how much risk is in the market. All right. I said my piece, Don. Yeah, let's talk about some of those stats, Dan. These, this is part of my uh, 13 rules. Since 1960, 22 of the worst 25 days and 83 of 100 occur under the 200-day moving average. 
The overall average monthly return of the S&P is plus 0.88%, but when under the 200-day moving average, the average return is minus 2.6%. Uh, that's a, obviously a very uh, big spread between those two, and it, it, it just gets back to the, how there's just a very clear um, line in the sand. But with that 200-day moving average, it's, it's the difference between a marginal market and a risky market. A healthy market when is when you're below the above the 50-day and the 21. Marginal market between the 50 and the 200. Risky market below the 200. Yep, absolutely. All right, what do the guys have for us today? Uh, let's uh, go to Connor. He's got some interesting stuff on the VIX. Yeah. So as the market's gotten a little bit sour, um, pulling back here. Wars escalating, fears picking up. I thought it'd be a good week to talk about the VIX and how you can use that to uh, estimate daily moves for the S&P 500. Um, just a little back, back stories. When the VIX starts to become elevated, um, volatility is going to increase. Uh, trends and swings are going to be more erratic. Yesterday was a good example. Um, S&P was moving up and down a couple points within a 30-minute period. So it makes it a lot harder to swing trade and trend follow when there's erratic price action in both ways. And when we look back into the rally this year from mid-May up until June, this coincided with a VIX below 20 for the majority of the time and, and even below 16. And as you can see in that chart, the, the trend was very smooth and a lot easier to hold stocks and the S&P 500. Uh, so yeah, so there's a rule called, it's the rule of 16. So 16 is the square root of 252, which is the number of trading days in a year. And you can use this number to get a hypothetical move of the S&P 500 for a day. So what you do with this is you take the value of the VIX and you divide it by 16. So when the VIX is trading at 16, you can expect about a 1% uh, move in either direction for the day. Uh, at a 32 VIX, it could be upwards of 2% and so on. So if you, and right now we're at 21, so 21 uh, divided by 16, don't know the exact number, but it's one point something. And that's the expected volatility in the S&P uh, for a given day. So this can help. Because as the VIX starts to get elevated, you can have, you can have an idea of, of what the S&P is going to move during a day. And this can help you position and be prepared for volatility. Um, yeah, so that's just a little, a little tool that you can use to have an idea of what to expect going into a day as uh, the VIX becomes elevated. Yeah, good point. And uh, I track this. Uh, pretty closely. I'm going to bring this uh, into onto the screen, and uh, I all, back. This isn't real easy to see, but I'll just quote some numbers. Back on 6:14 of 2022, when we were in the throes of the bear market, the ATR or the average true range of the S&P 500 was 2.79 percent. So on an average day, uh, you, there was a 2.9 2.79% spread between the low and the high on the S&P 500. As we started to recover, this drastically came down and it 
uh, formed a bottom on 731 of this year where the range of the S&P 500 was only 0.79%, virtually no volatility whatsoever. As of yesterday's close, the average true range of the S&P was up to 1.17%. This is one of the stats that I show every night on the tail of the tape. Uh, and if I have it highlighted in red, which I do now, it means it's increasing and it has been substantially increasing over the last uh, couple of weeks, going from uh, 0.95 uh, on a month ago all the way up to 1.17. So that's a 20% increase in volatility over the last three weeks. And we're very clearly seeing that uh, on what's going on, not only in the S&P 500, but also in individual names because uh, as, the, as the volatility of the S&P increases, the volatility of individual names will also, and we have a calculation that we use in-house called Revere Volatility Adjusted Beta that allows us to pinpoint exactly what the expected volatility of our portfolio is based on a combination of a stock's beta, which is the return that it gets based on what the S&P 500 is doing, and what the overall ATR of the individual stock or ETF is versus the ATR of the S&P 500. So, uh, and, and they've all been trending higher and uh, that's normally a negative sign and that's what we've been seeing. Below the 16 level is where uh, the S&P basically chalked up most of its gains uh, for this year. And once we got back above there and above the, the green line here, which is a 21 day moving average, uh, it's obvious to everybody the way we've been selling off over the last week, and this is with elevated volatility. Uh, the long-term value of the VIX is 20. Um, 20 is where we were hanging around while we were rallying back in January. This is the spike up to 30, which is when we experienced the regional banking liquidity crisis. Then you can see it came way down under that 16 level, but now we're back really just slightly above uh, the long-term average of the VIX, which is around 20, and we're trading at 21 right now. So when the volatility, the daily volatility increases and the VIX goes higher, what Don's saying is the risk is hot. That means the risk is, is expanding. The risk is higher. One more thing, because we didn't quite hit it, but it was related to what Don just said. He was talking about the internal uh, 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 Revere metric for the portfolio but we also have that for each position size. In, in that mailbag we had talked about, I was saying you want to standardize your position size so that each stock, if you get stopped out, has the same impact on the portfolio. Don, can you highlight that real quick? Just explain the... Yeah, but if you have, uh, if you have uh, something that has a volatility-adjusted beta of four, versus another position that has a volatility adjusted beta of two, you really want to have half the position size in the one with the volatility of four as you would for the one with the volatility of two in order to risk the same amount on a daily basis because of uh, how volatile they are uh, relative to the S&P 500 and each other. So we're in that volatility when we position as individual names. Uh, speaking of the VIX, something I talked about in last night's video also was uh, this VIX Central is a great website here, VIXCentral.com, and normally you want to see, this is the VIX term structure, VIX trades in monthly contracts going uh, all the way out to June of next year, and what you normally want to see these lines be is a smooth 
drive as if you're uh, on a road trip from Arizona up to Maine. You want to see them going from lower left to upper right. Anytime the, the far uh, left is above the next uh, periods, that's called backwardation or inversion. And that means that the market is uh, risk is perceived as higher in the market. And it, it's a stay away situation. We uh, do not want to be messing with the market adding longs if the VIX is inverted. There's also something called the spot VIX, which is this green line. When the spot VIX is above the future month, that also means current volatility is much higher than uh, at the November contract or the December contract. And that's where we are now. A lot of volatility in uh, over the next two months into the end of the year. But even prices going up, that's this is how the big hedge funds, a lot of them will hedge using VIX futures contracts. And so when the VIX itself goes up in price, that means that they perceive risk as being higher. They're willing to pay up for insurance. So that means that the big money thinks that the, the risk is uh, elevated. Right. Okay, that's it uh, on the VIX. Let's go to Mike now. Take it away, Mike. All right. Um, yes, sir. So today I'm going to put on my uh, my analyst hat and um, give give some facts, sprinkle in a little of uh, my own views because who who wants uh, an analyst that doesn't have any views? Uh, so most of it is going to be fact. My opinion could be wrong, but it's just my interpretation of of what's going on. So just wanted to share some thoughts. Um, but starting off consensus at the moment. Consensus says that we have a structural change on inflation. Everywhere everyone's talking about it, saying things have changed, the great moderation's over, we're in a new inflationary cycle, yada, yada, yada. But let's just think for a moment where consensus was at the beginning of this year. And, and Dan mentioned this. At the start of this year, consensus was for a recession. Everyone was calling for a recession. All the analysts said the market was going to drop major recession, what happened? The exact opposite. Not even the 150 PhDs at the Fed anticipated that we were gonna have such a strong economy. So consensus, while it may uh, be sort of cause you to, to think in certain ways and it may be very convincing, it's, not, it's typically not very accurate. So in terms of long-term views of structural changes consensus i think it would be more coincidence than than accurate for for consensus to be right that that we're in this new inflationary cycle so those are those are my thoughts on that and just some some facts now in terms of what it means for for rates to stay higher for longer and then i'll get into my views of what what may happen if rates stay higher for longer you will get a massive underinvestment from companies because of something called higher cost of capital. And I was listening to a few earnings calls, specifically yesterday, Freeport McMoran on their earnings, they spoke about this. And a lot of mining companies, uh, they, they have to lay out a lot of capital and, and borrow money to, to do these long-term projects. And if the cost of capital goes up, these projects are no longer profitable. So you're not going to get the same amount of investment if they can't afford to do these projects because the net present value of those projects, the internal rate of return doesn't make sense. So in a higher for longer environment, margins and earnings are lower. 
because interest expenses go up, therefore profit margins go down. It's just basic math. And in the past, when rates have been elevated, corporate profit margins averaged, they were, they were in this range of about 6%. That was sort of the mean reverting level. And after the GFC, they rose to 11, between 11 and 12% when interest rates were slashed to zero. Because all of a sudden, if your cost of capital goes to zero, that extra margin of, of no interest expense uh, goes straight to the bottom line. So what does that mean? What that means is that you're going to get underinvestment, cost of capital is going to go higher. And now the issue is that companies, it, it seems as though they're unaffected, but the reason for that is, or a potential reason for that is because they haven't refinanced their debt at higher levels yet. And as you get more and more companies with either their interest rate swaps expiring, or their, their bonds maturing and they have to refinance at higher levels, well, all of a sudden their cost of capital goes way up, profit margins go way down, and that leads to if companies need to save money, they start laying employees off, the economy slows down. So that, that's how interest rates are supposed to work. And a lot of people think this time's different, the economy's immune from higher rates. We'll see, that, that's still to be determined. Uh, history and math would say that's not the case, but Maybe it is different this time. And I have seen a lot of charts comparing today's inflation to the 70s. A lot of people want to talk about, they show, they show very clear charts that inflation peaked, it came down, and then it surged again when you had the, the Arthur Burns uh, Fed of, of the 70s, and then Volcker had to come in and really throw the economy into recession. But in my opinion, those, those charts and, and comparing it to the 70s is not, is not an accurate representation of going, what's going on. Because let's just think about how today is different from the 70s. So today, first of all, is very different because you've got supply coming from a lot of different places. You've got China, Mexico, Southeast Asia, Eastern Europe. You didn't have those sources of supply or the technology you do today in the 70s. In the 70s, you were pretty much restricted to North America for supply and Western Europe. So when you have supply chain issues, which we saw during COVID, which we're suffering from still today, China's been slowing down, but you've got so many different sources. You see plants moving to Mexico. Uh, businesses move their capital and move their, their machinery. They get their supply from wherever it's cheapest. So eventually you are gonna see a lot of supply come online from many, many different places, and that is deflationary. And then technology, right? So technology is deflationary. And the technology you had in the 70s, uh, really, you can't even compare it to the te technology you have today. What really happened, the great moderation that I believe we're still in started in the mid to late 90s, which was something called the internet. So the cost of communication came way down. And it was a lot less expensive to, to communicate and operate. And if we're saying AI is this new technological and productivity revolution, and it's the next phase of the internet, well, that's, that's very, very deflationary. So you've got, you've got globalization, which people speculate is over. I don't think so, because even if we don't rely on China as much, we've still got Mexico, we've still got Vietnam, got Southeast Asia, you've got other places where it can come from and competition for, for those supply chains. And then you've got techn technological booms. So I, I, I think it it's, uh, doesn't really make sense to compare to the 70s. And the great moderation is still, uh, still on. So we'll, we'll see what happens to rates. Uh, but yeah, that, 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 that's what I got in terms of that.
Well, I will tell you, I will tell you that I, I, I think that there's different causes for the inflation of the 70s and the inflation now. Well, I mean, it's all caused by the Fed, the money printing. They printed too much money and stuck it in there. But there's different macro events in the background. However, I would uh, argue that the inflation still caused bond prices to get absolutely hammered both in the late 70s and in 2022 and causing a little bit of trouble with bonds uh, uh, this year, too, because they've got to raise rates to kill inflation and raising rates makes long term bond prices go down. So I agree that there's different reasons for the inflation, but it still affects the prices. One last oh. thing I forgot. Um, so so. If, if you want to look for a current day example of, of sort of the direction Western societies are headed, and, and this, is, this is happening today and, and very likely that in terms of uh, what's going on with demographics and, and productivity and just Western societies in general, you can look at Japan, right? They, they have been pumping money into the system, trying to produce inflation for decades. And they've been stuck in a deflationary cycle. And demographics, aging populations, combined with deflationary effects of technology, results in what's going on, on in, in Japan. If you look at their debt to GDP, it's a lot higher than where it is in the US, and it still hasn't produced inflation. So. I, I suspect that that is uh, j just in terms. If you look at our demographics, it's all kind of headed in the same direction. So that's, um, I, I believe, the the greatest example of of what what should or what likely will happen um, in the U.S. and other Western uh, countries. Well, yeah, that that may be true. But the, the problem with Japan is they own ninety percent of their bond market. They monetize their bond market, and the government owns all their bonds over there. And they own sixty percent of the stocks and ETFs. So one way that they've been able to kind of keep uh, they're they're trying to cause inflation, but then they also don't want their currency to collapse. So they've been monetizing their stock market and their bond market. That actually will keep quote the price down because they're they're the fake buyer that's supporting their stock and bond market. That, so there's a lot of mal, maladjustment, what do you call it? There's a lot of economic distortions in Japan because of all this money printing. But Mike, you're absolutely right. Their debt to GDP is way further than ours and it's crowding out the private sector. That's why they don't have any growth. As far as I'm concerned, Japan's, they're in trouble. They're in a lot more trouble than we are. Yeah. Folks, that's another reason that we're the strongest country in the world right now with all of our problems we've got even though our debt to gdp is over 100 it's still way better than europe china and japan so of all the big industrialized the big big powerhouses we're still the place to be right and we've got this global war going on well theoretically this potential middle east it could blow up to a global war yields in america should be coming down and they're not so something is going on in the background. You've got to be ready. You've got to be ready to take advantage and to make adjustments because it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what Mike thinks. And it doesn't matter what Harry Dent thinks. Price is truth. Folks, listen, have a great weekend. Be safe. No, no one more thing. One oh, more oh, thing. oh we got one, one more thing. thing. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, I wanted. I didn't want to leave without talking about our latest position, gold. 
Oh, uh, we yes. hadn't owned it for a while because it's been in a downtrend. Uh, Strauss, this is a chart of GLD, which is the uh, main ETF uh, for gold. 170 acted as a resistance support level late last year and early this year. We broke back above it, but we peaked in late April in gold and started uh, forming this double bottom base, which undercut then reclaimed 170 a couple of weeks ago. Extreme relative strength has been coming in to uh, the gold arena over the last two weeks. Uh, and this corresponds to, let's look, let's look at a 60 minute chart uh, on GLD. So a couple levels here, 81, uh, this was the prior highs that we were trying to break back above uh, from uh, a few weeks back. And yesterday, well, let's let's go back to the 13th. We had a gap up on gold. We consolidated that uh, for two days. We had another gap up on gold on the 18th, Wednesday uh, of uh, this week. And that got us above this 181 level. Anytime you get above a level, it's very frequent that you see it back tested and you want to see when it tests, does it hold and get back above. And that did happen in gold in that 181 level uh, on the 18th. And then yesterday, uh, we had a lovely speech and Q&A from Jay Powell. And uh, after he finished his speech, the reaction overall to the market was negative, but gold broke above the prior high from this gap on the 18th. We took a position in GLD and it's following through to the upside today. Uh, this to me is a statement on the geopolitical and uh, financial outlook uh, on the United States. Bitcoin is rallying also, but let's take a look at a, a, a longer term chart of GLD. Uh, gold topped at two, uh, gold pierced the 2000 level again today. Uh, back in 2011 was the prior high on gold before this huge base formed. We attempted to break out of it back in 2020 and one, two, three attempts at a break higher failed. So this is the fourth attempt. Every time you knock on resistance, it becomes a little bit weaker. Will we break through on this fourth attempt and make all-time highs in gold? Key item here, this is gold expressed in dollars. Gold expressed in every other currency in the world is already at all-time highs. <laughs> yeah. uh, Economist Martin Armstrong is very fond of saying a true bull market in any commodity only happens when it makes new highs in all currencies. So if gold finally breaks out, the strong dollar has been holding this down, but the weak currencies in every other uh, country is why gold is tr already trading at highs in those other currencies. It hasn't done it in the US dollar yet. Uh, but if we get above this uh, right now, 184.50 ish roughly uh, applies to the 2000 level uh, in the spot gold price per ounce. Uh, so if we get above these uh, highs from the last couple of years, going back to 2020, every time we tried to knock above that high back from 2011, we got slapped back down. We're keeping an eye on whether or not we can break out again, because uh, honestly, there's never really been more reasons to own gold than there is uh, right now. Well, I, I would agree, I would agree with that, folks.
Listen, if you like what you heard, please tell a friend, tell a neighbor. Just send them to revereasset.com. Up in the right-hand corner, there's a subscribe button. They can put their name in and their email address. We're not going to hassle them or bug them. It's up to them to reach out to us for a complimentary portfolio review or just uh, find out more about Revere. Or if they just want a topic discussed on this show or ask about a stock. Uh, you can also email, and there's a contact button right next to that. It sends me an email directly. You can ask a question or comment. Uh, you can also email any of us directly at dan at revereasset.com, don at revereasset.com, uh, Michael, Ted, or Connor at revereasset.com. And you can always call us old school at 855-REAL-WEALTH. Have a safe weekend, and we'll talk to you next May on your money. It's not about how much you made in the market. It's about how much of that you can keep. Your Money Radio podcast covers general topics and investment ideas for research. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be investment advice. If you want or need investment advice, contact your own advisors or reach out to Revere Asset Management for individual investment advice. For more information, just go to revereasset.com.